We continue our study through the book of Romans this morning, and I would ask you to go ahead and open your Bible to Romans 4. Uh, Romans 4, we made it as far last week as verse 12, and we'll pick up the study this morning with verse 13 and, and work to the end of the chapter. Before we do, though, I would like to ask you to join me in praying once again for God's help, and then also just to remember briefly some of the folks in our church who are experiencing physical difficulties, and other great needs. So let's pray together. Our God and Father, we are praying today that you would be merciful to us. We are in need of mercy, first of all, because we are great sinners. And like the publican who could not even lift his eyes to heaven because he had a greater awareness of his sin at the moment he prayed to you than anything else, so we often feel such a, an overwhelming weight of our sin and our unworthiness that we tremble to look upward, but by faith we look upward. By faith in Christ, because he has died the death we deserved and shed his precious blood that we might be cleansed from all unrighteousness. By faith in Jesus, we look heavenward today. By faith in your promises, we look to you. We say with the psalmist, as we read earlier in the service, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like you, our God? You alone are the God who works wonders. You alone have made known your might among the nations. And you are the one who, by your work, has redeemed your people. We happily admit that we cannot save ourselves today. But for some who are here, they're working hard to do just that. And they hope this morning that their righteous works would outweigh their unrighteous deeds and thoughts and words and that one day you might be favorable toward them. Maybe give them eternal life or at least some small place or station in heaven. Oh, Lord God, show them that that is a false hope, but that there is a real hope that they could gain full assurance today that their eternal inheritance is secure. There are some who are weary and worn out from life on this day, Lord, and and the word would, will be rich food for them, but we need your Holy Spirit's presence. And we ask that he would bring a deep conviction of the truths of these words. That a supernatural work would unfold because, Father, the, the power is not in me to persuade one person here. The power is not within us uh, to exercise our minds hard enough or effectively enough where we would say, oh, now we get it. There must be a spiritual work done in us by the Spirit of God. But that's exactly what you've promised. So please fulfill that promise for our good and for your glory. And there are those who cannot be with us today because they are uh, weakened physically. And so we ask for their sakes that you would bring healing and restoration and put your strength into their bodies even as you minister to their spirits. And may they... Uh, linger no longer in that place of, of physical weakness. We ask for your healing and restoration. And finally, Father, we are asking again that you would bless the ministry of your word as it is preached and taught all up and down this valley. This is a needy area. 
And wherever your ministers stand as faithful servants and open the word, whether it be in a sermon such as we are about to participate in or a children's lesson or even just a a brief conversation, but wherever the word is unfolded and wherever the word is opened, bless it that there may be uh, faith and that there may be rescue from sin and that there may be deliverance from darkness, that there may be life. Oh God, grant life. And grant it abundantly for Christ's sake. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If your Bible is open to Romans 4, would you please follow along as I read verses 13 through 25. Romans 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. That's why the inheritance depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Abraham's we're talking about, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. You know, Matt mentioned pinky promises. Did you make special promises when you were a kid? Did you swear out, you know, certain agreements and and whatnot? The most serious oath that I was aware of when, when I was a kid was to invoke that phrase, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. <laughs> I mean, you, you could not offer any more sure verification, authoritative witness than that. And you know, if you were in a circle of friends in the playground you know, telling one of those legendary factoids, you know, kids come up with the most remarkable truths and facts, don't they? And it's always a friend, so-and-so. Some of you are Andy Griffith fans. You know, Opie would always say, it's Johnny Paul. How do you know that? Johnny Paul told me. Well, every kid had a Johnny Paul who just, you know, was this walking encyclopedia of stories and amazing truths and realities. And, you know, it, it was... Sometimes in that conversation of one-upsmanship, those are always unfolding on, 
you know, the playground, even in, around the water cooler in the office or the neighborhood, aren't they? But, you know, it, it might go something like this. Yeah, well, my uncle knows this guy who's in the special forces, and they train up in the northwest, Washington or somewhere like that. And that guy was out on maneuvers for a month long and hadn't been in civilization. In the middle of the night, he wakes up, and he smells something really strong, and he begins to hear these scary grunts, and he puts on his night vision goggles, and Bigfoot is three feet away from him. <laughs> and all the friends are like, no way. And he's like, I promise, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And so all the skepticism just like vanishes in the moment and we all stand in almost like this holy awe and wonder like it must be true and we know this kid would not lie about his uncle's friend who's in special forces. I have no firsthand experience with pinky promises but that is how when I was younger you would verify that what you're saying is True. We take our promises seriously. And you know, so does the Lord. If you were to Google how many promises are in the Bible, you would see estimates ranging from the lowest I found was 3,573 all the way to 30,000. Now, I'm skeptical about that one because there actually aren't, but like, I think it's like 35, 36,000 Bible verses total. And and, and they're all true, but they're not all promises in the formal sense. So that estimate seems a little high. But again, I don't know what framework they may have used to say, to catalog and say these are promises. I did find a, an interesting little story about a man named Everett Storms who spent a year and a half reading the Bible and cataloging all the promises listed. And he really seems to have done a, a pretty thorough job of examining things that are promised, uh, statements that are made that, that really are like, you know, oaths. And he came up with 8,810, but listen to this, 7,487 of those that he found come directly from God to people like us. There are multiple books that have been devoted to the promises of God. A famous one that I'm familiar with is written by a, a theologian, Herbert Lockyer, who actually wrote a series, All the, and then he'd fill in a blank, and he has one titled All the Promises of God. And there are many others. A promise is a verbal commitment by one person to another in agreement that you're going to do something or provide something. Or maybe even it's a promise that you're not going to do something. But, but it is a, a commitment and typically a verbal one. Now, when you come to the New Testament and you, and you encounter that word promise, another little interesting truth, if you were to study it out, is that all but one use of this particular term in the New Testament have reference to God. There, there's only one use of this particular legal term, and it was, uh, that is not connected directly to God. And that's, that's not only intriguing to me, but I think it's a powerful reality for us that, that God is intent on, on making agreements that he intends to keep. And furthermore, when you study it out, you begin to see that the promises that he's making are not contingent uh, typically on, on our side of it. There are some agreements in the scriptures, if you do this, God says, then I will bless you in this way. But the promises we're looking at in, in particular today are not actually contingent upon Abraham getting it exactly right or you or me getting it exactly right. And that's part of the reason in the Hebrews passage that God swore by himself. He's not even saying pinky promise with me. 
No, he's saying, I'm gonna bear the full responsibility of this. That becomes a powerful, powerful motivator for us in life. And God's gonna show us what that looks like in the life of a man that you know well as Abraham. I don't suppose there are too many people on planet, well, that, that would be an extreme. Well, maybe not. Um, Abraham's well-known. I mean, he, he's highly regarded in the Muslim faith and certainly in, in the Christian faith, and there are a lot of others in between who would say, we've at least heard of him. But God's going to walk us through the life of Abraham and a couple of key points to show us uh, things like the, the substance of the promise and the foundation of the promise and the power behind the promise. And he does it all with a view of bringing you and me to the same place he brought Abraham thousands of years ago. So go back to verse 13 with me and look at this. And I want you to notice, first of all, the substance of the promise to Abraham. Paul writes, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So what is the substance of this promise? Abraham, you will be heir of the world. One author that I regard highly said, heir of the world is not a particularly easy expression to understand. But I don't think it's that complicated either when you break it down just kind of to how it's being used here and a, and a few other quick side references that we could consult. You know what an heir is. An heir is the person who's entitled by law or by the terms of a will to inherit the estate of another or the resources of another. And frankly, all of us you know, kind of hope that we are heirs on somebody's list, right? And, and some of us still have this you know, like fantasy that there's a long-lost relative somewhere that just knows of our plight and difficulty and is from afar has been planning you know, for years without telling us, but still been planning and, and praying that they would be able to bequeath their you know, $100 million to little old us. That would be a great thing, I suppose, but um, unlikely to happen. There's actually something more significant here. Heir of the world. Now, if Paul had said of Abraham, heir of the promised land, we'd all check that box and go, oh, well, of course. I mean, Abraham is the head of the whole Jewish nation, right? So that would make sense because God did promise the, the Jewish people the promised land. It's why he brought them out of Exodus and, and did all kinds of miraculous things. But that's not what Paul writes. He actually writes heir of the world. And there's something else going on here, and I'll just touch on it and kind of leave it for your encouragement and maybe further thought and reflection and meditation. But, but this, as another commentator writes, is a promise to Abraham and to his descendants of the restoration of God's created order. Everything that sin wrecked and ruined, and, and when this earth was thrown you know, off, of its, off of its beautiful created order and access, so to speak, God began to work to restore and repair. Well, he's making a promise to Abraham that is huge. And we'll get there in time, but in Romans 8, 16, and 17, Paul encourages the saints at Rome and, and encourages us, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God, and if children, then heirs. And listen to this, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What a remarkable thing. So whatever, whatever makes up, comprises God's resources and his personal wealth and whatever he as God the Father uh, has lined up God the Son to inherit, guess what? When by faith you repent of your sins and you come to him for salvation, you get included in the will. How amazing. I can think of a thousand reasons why God should actually exclude me from any benefit of, 
uh, of that kind. I can think of a thousand reasons why he actually ought to punish me forever as a rebel sinner that I have been in the course of my life. I can't come up with one reason within me why he should be so kind to say, I'm going to make you my heir and a fellow heir, a joint heir with Jesus. Well, that's actually packed into the promise that he's given to Abraham thousands of years ago. So that's the substance, heirs or heir of the world. And and I have to pause and ask this question, like how lavishly rich is God, first of all, and, and then how generous is he really to include people like us? How much does God really love you? We'll go back to the text, because now he's going to talk about the means of the promise. And he says, if we read verse 13 again, we'll get a, a running start. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And, and remember, last week, we, last couple of weeks in Romans, we've actually been working through chapter 3. And one of the key verses there is that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So this salvation is a free gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't achieve credits along the way and reach, you know, like double diamond, triple status, you know, in, in God's eyes. No, it's, it's totally a gift. So by works of the law, no human being will be justified. And now he says the means of the promise is through the righteousness of faith. And he's going to dig in and explain a little more of what that looks like. So go to verse 14. For if it, if it is the adherents of the law, literally those out of the law who are to be the heirs, well, faith is null and the promise is void. Now, he's talking specifically to people, most likely Jews, who out of their tradition would say, the law is everything. Torah is a precious gift from God. And the standard Jewish view, as another author writes, that it was Abraham's faithfulness to the law that secured God's blessing for him and that, and, and that others could be Abraham's child only by taking on themselves the, the yoke of the Torah. That's how it's literally referred to. The Torah being the law of God, the Old Testament. The irony is that on the one hand, you have to see in this that these are people who actually recognize that they are inherently acceptable to God, but they've concluded that they can actually make themselves acceptable by becoming law keepers. And Paul says in multiple places, and and God says in multiple places through the word that, you know, you you can try to do that, but you're going to realize again and again how far short you fall. You try to keep the law, all it's going to do is show you, as Abraham is about to say, you're under wrath. This sounds a great deal like many of the religions of our day. So many put the pressure back on the adherents. Keep these rules, keep these truths, live your life in this particular way. And if you do, maybe at the end, our God will you know, welcome you into heaven. Be good enough, be obedient enough, be worthy enough, be generous enough. And you know, who, who among us is enough? I'm not, you're not. No, we, we need a righteousness which is by faith. Verse 15, look at it. The law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Hey, real quickly, he's not saying that, there's, that sin doesn't exist. Transgression would have been a very specific term that as Jewish readers would have gone, ooh, wow. Let me put it this way. All transgression falls into the category of sin, but not all sin is in the subset of transgression. You say, so what, what is transgression? Real quick lesson, transgression denotes a specific kind of sin where an individual went beyond the limits set by God's law, and Jews knew what those limits were. Uh, They were well-versed in all of that, and and Paul is saying, you want to use the law to to get to God? The problem is, if you're really honest, you, you just can't do it, and you will often end up in transgression. And again, 
Ironically, the very thing the Jews were counting on to make them acceptable to God turned out to emphasize their sinfulness and unacceptableness before God. So the inheritance depends on faith. Now we would say faith in what? Well, look at verse 16. I'm glad you asked that. That is why it, the inheritance, depends on faith because you can't be obedient enough to, to get on God's will. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace, not your performance, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, and again, he's using terminology that's specific to the Jewish people, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, and now he's gonna quote Genesis 17.5 to prove the point, as it is written in Genesis 17.5, that's my little parenthetical note, I have made you the father of many nations, not just the Jewish nation. No, Abraham, what, what you are, are putting into play, so to speak, by your faith at this moment, and the promises that, that I'm calling you to believe are actually gonna open up for blessing and benefit to the entire world heir of the world. So we're starting to connect some dots, right? This gospel is not limited to Jews. It's for all who believe. And notice this again, the promise rests on grace. Think about that. The promise rests on not your performance today or yesterday or tomorrow. The promise rests on God's kindness to you. Those undeserved favors that flow from him, that's what we refer to as his grace. And God actually does a favor for those like Abraham who, who, who bring to him their hearts, not the assets of life, and go, hey, here's my resume. I'm a pretty good guy, and, and actually heaven would be a better place if I were there, and your kingdom work on earth would probably go better if, if I could bring my stuff to your kingdom company. That's, that's not grace. And then he speaks of a guarantee. It's a formal promise. It's a synonym for what we've been looking at. So, so God is saying, hey, this promise that I'm giving to Abraham and to all of his spiritual descendants rests on my grace, not your performance or your law keeping, and, and my guarantee is the one behind it. Have you ever gotten one of those guarantees or warranties that in the end amounted to nothing? I remember when we bought our, it was our second home, there was one of those household warranties that came for it and and, you know, it covered all kinds of things. And I was, I was really relieved because we had a, a significant problem with one of our toilets. It began to leak, and it leaked down into the basement area. And, you know, you discover this. It's never a convenient time. I'm like, great, got the, we got the home warranty. And so I call them, and, and they did send somebody out, and we ended up getting it resolved. But, you know, it, it, looking back on it, it still irritates me to this day because essentially the wax ring is, is all that had malfunctioned. And I got charged 50 bucks. But I'm like, wait, I thought I have the home warranty. Oh, we'll read the fine print here. There's a minimum $50, you know, service call. And, and you know, I'm not going to give the, the, the worker that they sent out the hard time, but I wanted to. And be like, what's the point of this home warranty? Those wax rings sell for $1.25 down at, you know, Ace Hardware. I could have done this myself. I didn't read the fine print. I'm like, mm, this is how they stay in business. They made an insane profit margin off of my unwillingness to read the fine print and, and do the work. And in a sense, I feel like, so what good was that guarantee? Some of you could probably tell even, you know, worse horror stories like, hey, 50 bucks. I know. Can you imagine if God had fine print in his guarantee where he's like, well, I know you thought I said I would forgive all your sins, but actually there are some other things that you need to do to this. 
I know I said I'd give you eternal life, but, you know, there's kind of that little clause in there that things didn't go so well for you the last five years of your life, and, you know, we're going to cut your eternal life a little short. I'm making up stupid things. No, when God guarantees or promises something, I mean, he doesn't have fine print hidden down there to kind of, like, turn it on you in a surprising way where you get less than what you were expecting. And this is where we begin to see a shift. So look again at the text because there's, there's power behind these promises and God wants you to know the, of that power. The text goes on to say, as Paul is writing this, in the presence of, of the God in whom he believed. And now we're starting to get to the heart of faith. A lot of us think that, that faith is kind of working up this spiritual energy, like, and I'm like having this perpetual pep rally, like, I'm gonna have lots of faith today. I'm gonna believe strong. No, faith has to have something as its object. And the question is, what object will your faith take? And right now, if some of you are honest, you'd have to say, I actually have the most faith in my capacity. I'm, I'm creative, I'm resourceful, I'm well-educated, I've got lots of life experience in me, I even have good health right now, so I, I have a lot to have faith in at this moment. Okay, see, that'd be an example of, of faith. But what we're going to see here is that God steps into the middle of a man's life and begins to reveal to him the weaknesses and the liabilities that characterize his life and in order to turn his attention to the enormous assets and attributes that are God's. He's amazing. So the question before us really is, who is this God that we, like Abraham, are called to believe in? Well, there are two things that he points out in this passage. Look at verse 17. First of all, he gives life to the dead. He's the God of resurrection power. This is not resuscitation, like people go into cardiac arrest or they're almost dead. No, this is like fully dead people coming to life again. God says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, see now that I, even I, am he, that is the God who's been speaking to you. There is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Do you remember the story from 1 Samuel of Hannah? She was actually one of two wives that uh, connected to uh, Elkanah. And she prayed year after year after year, Lord, give me a child, and she didn't get a child. Eventually, God gives her a child, one of a series of children that build our expectation for the, the, the Christ child to come ultimately. And in praise to God, after Samuel is born to her, who would be one of Israel's greatest uh, prophets and judges, she says, to God in spectacular praise. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And then listen to this. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, or that is the realm of the dead, and he raises up. What a God of power. The power to actually place an individual in the realm of the dead and actually has the power to bring them back from it. You know, there are 10 resurrections mentioned specifically in the Bible. There are three in the Old Testament. Two of them are actually the resurrection of, of sons of widows. It shows you something about the compassion that our God has because the, a, a son uh, would be a, a widow's hope of economic security and protection. The third is a man who contacts Elisha's bones in 2 Kings, and that's an extraordinary story. Uh, but then there are four particular ones in the New Testament. 
uh, in the Gospels, I should say, that precede the resurrection of Jesus himself. Another widow's son is, is raised. Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. Then Lazarus himself. And then at the, remember the day that Jesus was crucified, it doesn't give us details. It just simply says that many of the dead in Jerusalem came out of the tombs. So actually, we know there are more than 10 resurrections, just 10 resurrection stories that are there. And then following the resurrection of Christ, there are two others that are named, one raised by Peter, a lady named Dorcas, who was beloved by her community, and then Paul raises Eutychus. Now, aside from the resurrection of Jesus, what assets did any of those dead people bring to the resurrection transaction? Did any of them, inside the tombs where they lay or in the, in the rooms where they had been laid out you know, during the wake, did any of them exercise some, of the, some power of their own to come back to life? And of course the answer is no. Dead people don't, don't bring resurrection assets. But the God that Abraham was believing in is the God who raises the dead. That's some of the power behind the promises. The second thing that Paul mentions to us, and go back to the text and look at at his words again, this is the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. And there's an echo of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, isn't there? Go back and read that if you haven't read it lately, and you'll see some powerful truths there. It begins, uh, as Moses writes Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you'll see this repetition of, and God said, and it was so. And then you'll see an assessment. There's like this little formula. And God said, and it was so. And the assessment from God is, it was very good. And God said, and it was so, and it was very good. And God said, and it was so, and it was very good. God, this is a God of power to just speak things into existence. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. And beloved, I'm I'm just going to tell you, we need to flatly reject any other theories of origins that add stuff to this equation. And there are two general directions you can go. And, and one would be a, a creation that God took existing matter and, and formed all that is. But that leads us to the scary dualism. Material is, there, there's no material that's eternal. Only God is eternal. And so I'm not interested in entertaining a theory that would say, You know, God took some pre-existing matter because nothing pre-existed him. And what Paul's point here and the promises have to rest on this great power of God that he brings into existence things that don't exist. For the sake, well, most of the kids aren't here anymore, but there are a few young people here. It's not like God had a big box of really spectacular Legos where he dumped them out you know, on the floor of the universe and said, I think I'll make a world. Likewise, God didn't like break off a piece of himself. And this is ultimately where pantheism, uh, you know, kind of draws some of its thinking as if God like broke something off of himself and created the world. And so God is in us and we are in God and it's all God. Now that, that's erroneous. It's false seeking. Now what, what is taking place here is that God created all that is. Again, the Lord said, it's recorded in Isaiah 48, verse 13, my hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. That is, when I call them into existence, here they come, nothing stops them. God said it was so and it was good. 
But you know, if you, if you struggle to believe that God has that kind of power, it stands to reason that you're going to struggle to entrust your life to him, your soul. I, I get it. If you struggle to believe that God created all that is spoken into existence, I can understand that you would struggle to believe that he could actually create in you a new heart, that he has the power to remove the sins and guilt of your past, to bury it with Jesus in the, in the tomb and, and bring out a new you with Jesus. I get it. And I know some of you would say, yeah, but doesn't science prove and doesn't this theory demonstrate? Um, remember, science has to be observed. And to this point, no one has actually observed some of the very kinds of theories I'm putting forward. Do you believe God is this powerful? Abraham was. And you're going to see what an extraordinary difference it makes. You know, when Isaac is finally born to Abraham and Sarah, they name him, he laughs. That's what Isaac means. Did you know that? And they do that not only because God commanded them to name him Isaac, that's recorded in Genesis 17.9, but there's a sweet little uh, personal word recorded of Sarah in particular in Genesis 21. Listen to this. Genesis 21.5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And everybody should say, wow. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Yeah, you're 90 years old, Sarah. You just had a baby. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Yeah, exactly. Who would have said? Who would have said? It's laughter producing because humanly speaking, it's impossible. And, and some would even say, and inappropriate. People that age, no. It's also laughter-producing because it is the culmination of years of waiting and watching, of praying and pleading and having nothing. We're called to believe in a God who raises the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist for his glory and our laughter, our joy. We'll go back to Romans 4. Look at verse 18. Now, now you're going to see, I'm just going to describe this little portion, the reliability of the promise. But this is, this is where it gets real. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Now, let's pause right there. What is hope? Well, hope's just an expectation. And some hopes are stronger than other hopes because some hopes have, have, have greater reason to believe than other hopes. I mean, you can hope, again, going back to this illustration, that you've got a long-lost relative you know, who's got millions of dollars in the bank that they're just waiting to will to you when they breathe their last. You can hope for that, but you know, not much of a hope. Well, in Abraham's case, he's got some expectations that as he gets older and older and Sarah gets older and older, those hopes actually diminish. Now, before we get to the one side of the hope, I want you to consider that for just a, a moment, because Abraham is, is living really with both kinds of hope in his heart. It's easy to read the story and say, oh, God spoke to Abraham and, you know, and he left Ur and he went to the promised land and God blessed him and he became you know, amazingly wealthy and had a household you know, of hundreds and hundreds of servants and a little trained army. And yeah, he, he was all of that, but he still didn't have a son. And God had promised. Now look at verse 19 because here's, here's the, the problem hope, if I can put it this way. And we're going to kind of skip over. He did not weaken in faith 
We'll come back to that in just a moment. But, but here, look, look at this next phrase. He considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, the word considered means to give careful consideration. I mean, he's not a naive simpleton. There's simple biology involved. And at that particular point, uh, when the Lord visits him and says, a year from now, you're going to have a son. I mean, he's 99. She's 89. Really? I pause here because those considerations and circumstances could have reasonably weakened his faith, right? I mean, it would not be unreasonable if you were their friends and you had dinner with them one night and they said, you know, God promised us long ago, and, and we know God meant well, but it, it just, you know, we're resigned. To, this is the way it's going to be. And you'd say, oh, bless your heart. I'm so sorry. And, and you would not think that unreasonable. But a conversation like that could actually be a demonstration of a weakening faith, a faith that's weakened to the point where disobedience is about to come in the door. I've been asking in my own heart, what are the faith-weakening considerations that I'm wrestling with in my heart? You've got some. I've got some. And you know where they center on? The liabilities of life. For all the assets that Abraham and Sarah had, they did not have the assets that were necessary to propel them into the place of God's promise. That's why, it, that's why salvation can never be of work. Did you get that? For all the assets that Abraham had that he could marshal and he and Sarah could bring to bear upon this, they couldn't enter the promise of God by the exercise of those assets or the work involved in it. It's because the promise rests on grace. I'll guarantee you, you've got faith-weakening considerations that are all around you and in you right now where you're like, Lord, I'm too old to take that step of faith or I'm too poor or you know what, I've been too sinful in my past. I, I, I believe you've forgiven me, but I don't know that you could ever make me useful in service for you. And, and you're looking at all of those liabilities and saying, I, I don't have enough faith. And God says, I have something else for you to consider. So quit navel-gazing and look at me, because I'm the God who raises the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. Verse 20 says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And here it comes, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced. Who convinced him? Well, God did, but he's also exercising his mind and his heart, saying, you know, this is who God is, raises the dead, calls into existence things that don't exist, led me safely from Ur all the way over here to Canaan, protected me even when I was an idiot and told, you know, that one guy that Sarah's my sister and protected us. I mean, he's looking back on a lifetime of God's faithfulness, but he's got to give consideration. And, and what's it going to be, Abraham? Are you going to... Are you going to give consideration to those faith-weakening circumstances and let those really rule and drive your life? Or are you going to give consideration to who your God is, even though you can't quite fully make sense of it with your small mind and understanding? Well, it's obvious what he does. Paul tells us what he does, doesn't he? Do you know when, when the Lord visited Abraham at the age of 99 and said, a year from now you'll have a son? Do you ever wonder why God made him wait so long? Humanly speaking, doesn't it seem like it's a lot of wasted years? 
Let's just even rewind it all the way to the place when he was 75 and God called him out of idolatry. Why would God let Abraham live in idolatry for his first 75 years? Doesn't that seem like wasted time? I mean, if you were writing this story, wouldn't you have Abraham be born into like a God-fearing home and he grows up and loves the Lord with all his heart, serves him faithfully, you know, he's an obedient, honorable man of faith, man of integrity, but God just kind of lets those first 75 years go and then shows up and says, come with me. Leave your family history, leave the household of idolatry, and, and I'll tell you where to set up your tent when we get there. And Abraham does it. And in that beautiful early days where God also gives him the promise, it's the first time he says to him, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to give you a, 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 a son, a special son. And through him, the promise will extend. But you know, five years in, you'd feel like, okay, God's given us time. We're, you know, we're out of Ur, and we're kind of settling into this new routine. Okay, God, it's time. But five years comes and goes. Ten years. Fifteen years. Twenty years. And even in that intervening period of time, Abraham and Sarah, who are wrestling with the promises of God and, and what is supposed to come, and they're looking at the, the, the liabilities again, going, well, the child isn't coming through you, Sarah, so, and they come up with this plan, well, maybe it's Hagar, which culturally speaking, it was an acceptable thing to us. It's a little distasteful, isn't us? But Sarah says, well, here, take my handmaid. Maybe we'll be able to raise up this promised son through Hagar. And so they try, and that just doesn't go well at all, does it? And God waits a hundred years. And you know why? Well, here's one of the reasons. So nobody besides God himself, gets credit for what happened. And it makes for an awesome story and takes the spotlight off of Abraham and Sarah as the great heroes and places the spotlight exclusively on the great God. And beloved, that's exactly where God belongs in all of our hearts. See, we'd write a story to make Abraham and Sarah the heroes and God says, they're special people, but they are not the heroes. And to show you where their faith was when Jesus I do believe pre-incarnate form of Christ. The Lord appears and says, a year from now, both of them laugh. Go back to Genesis and read it. And they're not laughing in disbelief like, oh yeah, right, you know, we're, we're so bitter and angry and like we stopped following you and believing in you. No, they, they laugh because they're like, and it's at that point that the Lord asks Abraham a question that every one of us needs to wrestle with. In Genesis eighteen fourteen, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, that's easy to answer in one respect. It's hard if you really start thinking through the circumstances of your life going, well, is this too hard for the Lord? Seems like it. And some of you can look back over a period of time and say, yeah, I've been waiting 25 years for God to answer this prayer, and I'm running out of faith. Hold on. Is it still too late? Is this too hard for the Lord? No, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You know where it brings us? to that same crossroads of consideration. For Abraham, it was considering his own body, as good as dead. I'm a century old, time's up. My wife, love her, but she's not bringing anything to this either. If you spend your time right now meditating on your liabilities, all the scary stuff that's inside of you, like your sin and weakness and unbelief and such, and you spend your time meditating on all the scary stuff that's in our world today, you will never, Take a step of faith to follow this God. 
But if you get your eyes off of yourself and your circumstances and you begin to actually meditate on this powerful God who calls into existence things that don't exist, who has the power to bring dead people out of the realm of the dead, that is a game changer. And that's exactly where he wants you to be. And look again at the text. And in conclusion, as Paul winds down this paragraph, he says simply, verse 23, the words it was counted to him. So, so in a sense, when, when God sees that kind of faith, and it's not even perfect faith in Abraham, but it is singular faith. It's faith in God alone. It's not faith in his wife. It's not faith in himself. It's not faith in his handmaid or his servants or his little small army. It's not in any of that. It's in God God says, then I count that as righteousness for you. That's the first installment of his inheritance. God credits Abraham's account with faith. And so now Paul goes on from there to say, the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Not just one of the widow's sons, not just Jairus' daughter or Lazarus, but actually raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We're back to Easter. I don't know what God wants you to do as far as that next step of faith, but he's coming to us today saying, I'm a God of greater power than you can fathom, and I know that your liabilities are debilitating for your faith right now and your walk of life, but I'm telling you, get your eyes off of those liabilities, those faith-weakening considerations, and put your heart on this faith-building reality and truth. I am who I am, and I've promised what I've promised. And that even, I mean, all kinds of things open up for us here, but one of the things that it includes is this work of gospel effort that we're all partnering in. I mean, if, if it were up to you or me or the other churches in this valley to see stuff happen, I mean, we just should shut it down. Go home this afternoon and watch golf or NASCAR or Whatever. HDTV, just kind of amuse yourself until the end comes, but this God does what we can never do in ourselves. Some of you need to believe him for the first time. You need to stop trying to be good enough, obedient enough, a law keeper enough, like the Jews of, of Paul's day, and just lay all that down and say, God, I, I need your forgiveness. I need this gift of righteousness. He'd give it to you. Some of you are weary and praying for loved ones, family members, friends who are away from the Lord. What if Abraham and Sarah had stopped after 24 years? Year 25 is when things broke open. And aren't we glad that Abraham and Sarah were walking by faith back then? Would you bow your heads with me, please? There's always a reward for believing. You won't receive that initial installment of righteousness by grace, through faith in Christ alone, that you need for salvation. And you won't receive the full inheritance as God's heir, as a joint heir with Jesus, apart from faith. What are you looking at this morning? What has captured your attention? For some of you, if you were honest before God, you would say, my faith has been weakened because I, I'm too consumed with my liabilities and the difficult circumstances of life right now. Then do you hear him just saying to you so kindly and sweetly, look at me, look at who I am, look at the power behind this promise, 
Father, would you give us that singular faith that we see in Abraham, that it would be said of us, no unbelief makes us to waver concerning the promises of God, but that we, like Abraham, grow strong in our faith, giving glory to you, fully convinced that you are able to do what you have promised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.